Welcome back to Panastoria, everybody. I'm Lindsay. I'm Giona. Kevin is also present. As he usually is. We're here to tell you about a love story of the, the Cold War variety. A bromance. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, God. So, full disclosure, there's a weather front moving in, and it's absolutely obliterating my head. I have the worst migraine. This is going to be a good time. I, uh, I've taken, taken a lot of migraine drugs. It's not really working. We'll see if happens. We'll, we'll get through there. We'll get through it. Yeah. But anyways, back to the story. Yeah, we're here to tell you about our good friends, Mikhail Gorbachev and... Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Mickey and Ronnie. The only president to have previously acted with a monkey. Or sorry, a chimp. I'm not making this up. Best fun fact. Truly the best fun fact. No, there's another one, well, but we'll, we'll get there. There's lots of really f- good fun facts, truly. <laughs> um, yeah, so may as well get started with old Mikhail anyway. So Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev was born on March 2nd, 1931 in Pravolnia Stravopol Krai, which is in the southwest part of the then Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic which at the time was just a constituent republic of the USSR, and then it's obviously now in Russia. It's close to Ukraine, so at the time of his birth, his village was split almost evenly between ethnic Russians and Ukrainians. His paternal family were ethnic Russians and moved to the region from Voronezh several generations before, but his maternal family were ethnic Ukrainians. He was originally named Victor, but at the insistence of his devout Orthodox Christian mother, he had a secret baptism, and his grandfather christened him Mikhail. Gorbachev was close to his father, Sergei, but he had a much colder and more distant relationship with his mother, Maria. His parents were poor and lived as peasants, having been married as teenagers in 1928. Most of his childhood took place during the Stalinist era, which would forever have an impact on him, and it was really reflected in a lot of what he did, ultimately, and believed. Stalin believed that a, ma- a project of mass rural collectivization would help convert the, so- or the country into a socialist utopia, essentially, like a, a proper socialist society. Gorbachev's maternal grandfather joined the Communist Party and helped form the village's first kolkhoz, which is a collective farm, in 1929. The farm was about 19 kilometers outside of Provolnia, and when Gorbachev was three years old, he left his paternal home and moved onto the kolkhoz with his maternal grandparents. During the famine of 1932 and 1933, Gorbachev lost both of his paternal uncles and an aunt, and that was followed by Stalin's purges, which his family was also caught up in, both of his grandfathers being arrested and sent to the Gulag labor camps prior to being released in 1938. After they were released, Gorbachev's maternal grandfather discussed having been tortured by the NKVD, the secret police. That account influenced the young boy pretty heavily, as it would anyone, I think, being talk- talking about torture really messes you up, like... Little sidebar on torture, because uh, <laughs> the, the, the NKVD and later the KGB have done a lot of that. Oh, yeah. uh, like John McCain's speech when they were talking on about torture in the Senate was like it was so hard to listen to. Like he hearing his experiences about being tortured in Vietnam were really tough. Like torture is it's no bueno. The German army in World War II invaded Russia, so. They occupied Provolnia for about four and a half months in 1942, so not for very long. Gorbachev's father served on the front lines in the Red Army, and he was actually wrongfully declared dead during the conflict. But he served in the Battle of Kursk before returning to his family, injured. Gorbachev's brother was born after the war in 1947. They were the only two children born to Sergei and Maria. After his school reopened in 1944, he was resistant to going back, because, I mean, what kid wants to go back to school? (laughs) Let's be real here. 
But once he, <laughs> once he did, he actually really excelled because he was smart. He was an avid reader, and he moved from the works of Western novelists, because at this time you could still read them in the Soviet Union, like Thomas Maine Reed, to Russian classics like Pushkin, Gogol, and Lermontov. He joined his local Komsomol, which is a youth group. I think every leader has joined, an, joined a Komsomol. It's like, you have to, pretty much. Anyways, he joined it in 1946, and he became a leader of the group, eventually going on to be elected to the committee for the district. He moved to Molotovskaya for high school, which was kind of close by, staying there during the week, but then walking the 19 kilometers home during the weekends. Wow. Yeah. Sucks. <laughs> he participated in the school drama society and helped organize sporting and local social activities and led the school's morning exercise class. So he's a pretty charismatic dude. People, he seems to like be good around people. But over the course of the next five years, he would return home for the summers and assist his father in operating a combine, sometimes working 20 hours a day during harvest. In 1948, they harvested 8,000 centeners, which is bushels of grain, which is approximately 800,000 kilos, if my math was correct, which it may or may not be, but it's a lot. Seems reasonable. His father, Sergei, was awarded the Order of Lenin and Mikhail the Order of the Red Banner of, of Labor for their efforts. So, big deal. Gorbachev became a candidate member of the Communist Party in June 1950 and applied to study at Moscow State University, which at the time was the most prestigious university in the country. Fun fact, I've been there. Pretty cool place, actually. It's a huge building. It is a massive building, yeah. Huge. Anyway, they accepted him without asking for an exam, probably because of his worker-peasant background and because he had been awarded the Order of the Red Banner of Labor. So... That kind of background really made you advance quickly. Like at the time, especially that was like you know the the dream story of like worker slash peasant who rises to power, you know, does good thing type of thing. So and wants to get educated. So pretty common. Kind of the enlightenment of Soviet communism. Yeah. Okay. A little bit. Anyways, he chose to study law, which was actually an interesting choice because at the time it was not a well-regarded subject in Soviet society. But at the age of 19, he hopped on a train for Moscow, and that was his first time leaving the Stavropol area. At first, he struggled to fit in. Him and his fellow rural students felt kind of at odds with their Muscovite counterparts. You know, for obvious reasons, I think. It's kind of the same old story, but eventually they came to fit in, and he gained a reputation as being a mediator in disputes and also being outspoken in class. He kept a number of his views private, though. He confided in some students his opposition to the Soviet jurisprudential norm that a confession proved guilt noting that confessions can be forced, which was pretty common. During the time of his studies, an anti-Semitic campaign spread through the USSR, and there have been a lot of those through history. Anyways, it culminated in what's called the Doctor's Plot, which was a campaign spearheaded by Stalin in 1952-1953, in which a number of prominent Jewish doctors, mostly in Moscow, were accused of a conspiracy to assassinate Soviet leadership. After the death of Stalin, the Soviet leadership said there was a lack of evidence and the case was dropped. It was also soon declared that it was fabricated, which it, you know, was. During this plot, though, Gorbachev actually publicly defended a Jewish, Jewish student who was accused of disloyalty to the country by one of their fellows. Gorbachev had, like, kind of a... He was, he was definitely a, ref, a reformer. That's how everyone knows him. So there's a lot of things that are consistent with that. He liked to kind of raise people up a little bit and... Yeah, he, he believed in, I think, like, good moral character no matter what. And, like, yeah, I don't know. He was, I don't want to call him a bleeding heart, but, like, by Soviet standards. Yeah, kinda, I know what you mean. Kind of. He became the Komsomol head of his, and he was really charismatic, actually, which helped. He became the Komsomol head of his entering class at Moscow State and then Komsomol's deputy secretary for agitation and propaganda at the law school. 
It's my favorite department. Agitation and propaganda. Anyway, one of his first comfortable assignments in Moscow was to monitor the election of polling Krasnospresnenskaya district to ensure the government's desire for near total turnout. Gorbachev found that most people actually just turned out to vote because they were scared, which was revealing to him. In 1952, he was appointed a full member of the Communist Party, and as a party Komsomol leader, he was tasked with monitoring fellow students for potential subversion. Some fellow students said that Gorbachev did so fairly minimally and that they trusted him to keep confidential information secret from the authorities. He even became friends with a Czech student who would later become a primary ideologist in Prague Spring. Gorbachev was often uncomfortable having to spy on his fellow students. He wasn't really into that, so... His other students obviously backed that up. He wasn't a snitch. While he was studying at Moscow State, he met Raiza Tedarenko, who was studying in the philosophy department. Woo-woo. Uh, <laughs> they started dating, and in 1953, he actually went back to his hometown to work on the farm with his father, earn enough money to pay for them to get married. They were married on September 25th, 1953. Raiza was actually pregnant at the time, but ended up getting sick and needing a life-saving abortion. It was a bit of a traumatic start to their marriage, but it uh, lasted all the way to her death in 1999. In June of 1955, Gorbachev graduated with distinction, with his final paper being on the advantages of socialist democracy, so the Soviet political system, over bourgeois democracy, or liberal democracy, as it's more, you know, commonly known. He was subsequently, I feel like everyone wrote that paper. (laughs) (laughs) Like... That's the most obvious topic to write for a thesis. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) He was subsequently assigned to the Soviet Procurator's Office, which is kind of like a public prosecutor in most systems, but they also do other stuff, which was then focusing on the rehabilitation of innocent victims in Stalin's purges. But they found no work for him, somehow. This is kind of during the period of destalinization, by the way. He was offered a place as a, or on a Moscow State University graduate course specializing in Kolkhoz law, but he declined it. He wanted to stay in Moscow to remain with Raiza as she was doing her PhD, but he ended up finding work in his home region of Stavropol, and Raiza left her studies and joined him. Boo. But also, I guess, yay. I don't know. Anyway, philosopher Raiza. I appreciate it. In August 1955, Gorbachev started work at the Stavropol procurator's office, but disliked the work a lot. Which was common. He started work at like two or three different procurator's offices and was like, no, and left. So, kept trying. Kept disliking it. And so he worked his connections, because he made a few, and got a transfer to work for Komsomol, becoming a deputy director of Komsomol's agitation and propaganda department for the region. In this position, he spent a lot of time traveling to local villages and trying to improve the lives of locals and establish discussion groups to help peasants in those villages establish social contacts. Initially, Gorbachev's, or the Gorbachevs lived in a small room, but in 1957, Graiza had their first child, Irina, and they moved into two rooms in a communal apartment. In 1961, he pursued a degree in agricultural production through correspondence and received his diploma in 1967. Irina also pursued a second degree, earning a PhD in sociology in 1967 from the Moscow Pedagogical Institute. While in Stavropol, she too joined the party. I just enjoy saying the party. Uh, I just have an image of like Stalin in a party hat. Yeah. Anyway, according to biographer William Tobin, Gorbachev seemed to embody the reformist sentiment of the times. After Stalin's death, Khrushchev denounced Stalin and his cult of personality and launched destalinization across Soviet society. 
Gorbachev saw himself as a genuine Marxist as opposed to what they, they saw as perversions of Stalin. He spread the message of de-Stalinization in Stavropol, but often ran into people who continued to regard Stalin as a hero or praised the purges as just. I mean, it was a place that was occupied by the Germans still early, I guess. And honestly, there's still a lot of people in Russia who are not super hateful of Stalin. Right, yeah. Anyway, he rose steadily through the ranks of the local administration, and he was seen as politically reliable. He was also a bit of a kiss-ass and would flatter his superiors. For instance, he gaining the favor of prominent local politician Fyodor, Fyodor Kulikov. He was clever and outmaneuvered his rivals, and some of them obviously resented him for that. So he was not enemy-free in his rise, but he was generally respected. In September 1956, he was promoted to first secretary of the Stavropol city's Komsomol, which placed him in charge of it, and in 1958, he was made deputy head of the Komsomol for the entire region. He's a fast riser, actually. Uh, he helped form discussion groups for youths and helped mobilize young people to take part in Khrushchev's agricultural and development campaigns. At this point, the Gorbachevs were finally assigned better living quarters. They got a two-room flat with his own kitchen and bathroom, moving up in the world. In March of 1961, he became the first secretary of the regional Komsomol. In his position, he went out of, his, out of his way to appoint women as city and district leaders. Feminist icon, Mikhail Gorbachev. <laughs> Uh, happy International Women's Day. Actually, this is a theme, though, for real. All kidding aside, because I'll talk about it later, but him and his wife are, like, really close. Like, they were kind of an oddity in that. They were they were extremely close. They spent a lot of time together. They didn't really socialize. They just spent a lot of time, like, going to the theater and museums and doing things together. So it's kind of cute. There's actually, like, a lot of love stories in this. Oh. It, I mean, I... Yeah. We said laughing or tears, laughter, the threat of nuclear annihilation. <laughs> All of the elements. Anyway. <laughs> also in 1961, Gorbachev played host to the Italian delegation of the World Youth Festival in Moscow, and that October he attended the 22nd Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. It's <laughs> a lot of words. In January of 1963, Gorbachev was promoted to personnel chief for the regional party's agricultural committee, and in September, became first secretary of the Stavropol City Organization, or GORCOM. By 1968, he was increasingly frustrated with his job, in large part because Khrushchev's reforms were stalling or being reversed. He even contemplated giving up politics to work in academia. Imagine what would have happened if that, like, that's kind of like a what-if moment in history, yeah, I think, definitely. to be honest. But he stuck it out, and in August 1968, he was named second secretary of the Stavropol Krakom, making him the deputy to Leonid Yefremov and the second most important figure in the Stavropol region. In 1969, he was elected as a deputy to the Supreme Soviet of the Soviet Union and made a member of its Standing Commission for the Protection of the Environment, which is kind of funny because they didn't really do a lot of that. He had been cleared for international travel in the Eastern Bloc in 1966, had been part of a delegation to East Germany. In 1969 and 74, he visited Bulgaria. In 68, the Soviet Union led an invasion of Czechoslovakia to put an end to Prague Spring, and although Gorbachev publicly supported it, he later stated that he had had private doubts about the invasion, which makes sense because he was friends with someone who was part of it. In 1969, he was part of a Soviet delegation sent to Czechoslovakia where he found the Czechoslovak people were largely unwelcoming to them to the surprise of nobody. They quashed their, their rising. That same year, the Soviet authorities ordered him to punish Fagin Sadikov, a Stavropol-based agronomist whose ideas were regarded as critical of Soviet agricultural policy. Gorbachev ensured he was removed from a teaching position, but ignored calls for him to face tougher punishment. 
He later admitted that the incident affected him deeply, admitting that his conscience tormented him. He really didn't like confrontation. (laughs) (laughs) And he also, I think, was just really not into, like, arbitrarily punishing people for standing, you know, for having a different idea. Yeah, exactly. He continued to rise, and in 1970, Yefremov was moved to higher position in Moscow, and Gorbachev succeeded him as the first secretary of Stavropol Krajkom, granting him significant power over the region. He had been personally vetted for the position by senior Kremlin leaders and was informed of their decision by the Soviet leader, Old Brezhnev himself. At age 39, he was definitely the youngest of any of his predecessors. Young prodigal star, Mikhail Gorbachev. (laughs) (laughs) As head of the region, he automatically became a member of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in 1971. He had now joined the super elite of the party. Initially, he attributed economic and other failures to the, quote, inefficiency and incompetence of flaws in management structure or gaps in legislation. But eventually, he just concluded that an excessive amount of centralization of decision-making in Moscow made things extremely difficult and inefficient. He began reading translations of restricted texts by Western Marxists and came under their influence. Writers such as Antonio Gramsci, Louis Aragon, Roger Garaudi, and Giuseppe Boffa. His main task as regional leader was to raise agricultural production levels, something which was hampered by severe droughts in 1975 and 1976. He oversaw the expansion of irrigation systems through the construction of the Great Stavropol Canal. He oversaw a record green harvest in Ipatovsky district in March 1972 and was ordered the Order of the October Revolution by Brezhnev at a ceremony in Moscow. He always sought to maintain the trust of Brezhnev and repeatedly praised him in speeches and referred to him as the, quote, most outstanding statesman of our time. He was a good politician in a system like a so- the Soviet one and developed good relationships with important people. He didn't always actually agree with Brezhnev, but he was really good at kissing his ass. <laughs> Which was important. I mean, you kind of have to. Yeah. It's kinda Survival's that. kind of important. That's how this works in the system. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, the system. <laughs> he and his wife holidayed in Moscow, London, Grad, Uzbekistan, and the North Caucasus. They holidayed with the head of the KGB, Yuri Andropov, which was a very important relationship to develop. And Joffov actually really liked Gorbachev, <laughs> which is good, because you don't want the KGB to hate you. Right, but how could you not like Gorbachev? Oh, so true. He just seems like a likable dude. Yeah. <laughs> the government considered Gorbachev sufficiently reliable, and he was sent as part of a Soviet delegation to Western Europe, and he made five trips between 1970 and 77. In 1971, he was part of the delegation to Italy, where they met with the Italian Communist Party. Gorbachev loved Italian culture, but he was struck by the poverty and inequality he saw there. Italy took a long time to rebuild. I mean, still is actually pretty disparate, I think, in some cases. Yeah, especially in the south, apparently. Yeah. Except, I think Sicily is doing pretty well, but definitely, like, around Naples. I think it's certainly improved, but yeah, I think there's still definitely, I mean... Well, the north is definitely... Better off. Um, yeah, it's more wealthy than the south. For sure, yeah. In 1972, he visited Belgium and West Germany in 1973. He and his wife visited France in 1976 and 1977, and on the latter occasion toured the country with a guide from the French Communist Party. Mm. He was surprised by how openly Western Europeans offered their opinions and criticized their political leaders. I think it was not, it was just not a thing you did in the Soviet Union because there was an inherent safety risk in doing so. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> he later said that these visits shook him and his wife of their, quote, a priori belief in the superiority of socialist over bourgeois democracy. For those of you who don't know Latin, a priori means just like your first kind of unconscious belief. Maybe not first, but like it's an unconscious belief that something is true. Yeah. Something you don't necessarily question. Yeah. 
Because you've never had anything too like to yeah. to shake that and make you question it. Gorbachev remained close with his parents, actually, which spending much of his career in his home region was probably helpful for that. His father became terminally ill in 1974, and Gorbachev traveled to be with him before his death. Raiza and Mikhail's daughter, Irina, married a fellow student in 1978. And in 1977, the Supreme Soviet appointed Gorbachev to chair the Standing Commission on Youth Affairs due to his experience with mobilizing young people in Komsomol. In 1978, he was appointed to, the sec to a secretary of the Central Committee. The appointment was approved unanimously by the Central Committee's members. This meant moving back to Moscow, where they were initially given a dacha outside the city, before being allocated a newly brick built brick house. He was also given an apartment in the city, but gave that to his daughter and son-in-law because Irina had begun, begun work at Moscow's second medical institute. They had officially entered the elite political class and now had, to, all, had access to all kinds of perks, like better healthcare and specialized shops. So, you know, they actually got food. <laughs> they were also given cooks, bodyguards, servants, and secretaries, but many were really spies for the KGB because, of course, in his new position, he often worked 12 to 16 hour days, and while the couple socialized little, they enjoyed visiting Moscow's theaters and museums. In 1978, he was appointed to the Central Committee's Secretariat for Agriculture, replacing his old friend Kulikov, who died of a heart attack. He focused his attention on agriculture at that point, as the harvests of 79, 80, and 81 were all quite poor. And this was largely due to poor weather, but the country had to start importing a lot of grain at that point, and most of it came from the U.S., which was, you know, interesting. <laughs> he had growing concerns about the country's agricultural management system, coming to regard it as overly centralized and needing more bottom-up decision-making, which makes sense. I mean... It's hard to understand what's happening 2,000 or, you know, 2,000 miles or kilometers to the south of you when, yeah. you know, you can't make decisions when you're not there. And it takes a long time. It's really inefficient. Yeah. Not good for farming. No. <laughs> um, or anything, really. He raised these points at his first speech at a central committee plenum in, June, or in July 1978, which I don't think was taken super well. <laughs> but anyway. He had other concerns beyond agriculture, though. The Soviets invaded Afghanistan, which we talked about last episode, and Gorbachev privately thought that this was a mistake. He didn't really ever, I don't think, super openly support it, but he did definitely think it was a mistake. He did definitely openly support the government line on some other issues, though. You have to. Uh, in October 1980, he endorsed Soviet calls for Poland's government to crack down on dissent, so fuck you, solidarity. Uh, <laughs> which, yeah, on the dissent that had been spreading in Poland. The same month, he was promoted from a candidate member to a full member of the Politburo, the highest decision-making authority in the Communist Party. At this time, he was the youngest member. Quite a life that he had up in, yeah. I mean, he's still alive, but yeah, spoilers. Oh, yeah. Quite there's, a life. There's more, too. But. Um, Reagan's is definitely not as straightforward. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, the thing about, it's kind of funny, because, like, it's very like regimented in in this type of system. Like you you just rise through the ranks. And like it wasn't necessarily inevitable that he went into politics, but once you're in politics, it is kind of like it's not the same type of politics. Yeah. It's why when politicians had to start like campaigning in Russia, they didn't know what to do. Because <laughs> it's just not you don't have to. Right. You don't yeah. care about the like the people don't have anything to do with it. And so I think that's probably why Something like his life is so just kind of straightforward in that way. Well, it's probably also going to have the same issues. Russia's going to have the same issues coming up soon because 
I mean, they still kind of, I mean, I, I want to be careful because I don't want to be banned, but it is basically a one-party system yeah. over there. So. It is. Yeah, so. Functionally. But anyway, well, I also mean like <laughs> Reagan, like not not in his life, not in terms of politics, but like everything. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> it's like, a lot more colorful. Gorbachev kind of lived bizarre. like a very like kind of model. And I mean, that's just like a summary. There was definitely lots of. Oh, yeah. I, I'm sure yeah, lots of sure. turmoil, but we can only talk about so much. But like right. in a way, his life was kind of very like model. And it, it makes sense given the time he grew up. Like, right, yeah. you're going to rise fast if you have any kind of brain and you work hard. Right. Like, he, you know, he, his family kind of survived Stalin, but, you know, he, he, yeah, I think he was part of like a first wave. It comes up like later during his rise, but he's for, sort of part of like that second big wave of like officials who were educated. Yeah. And um, Reagan's is just kind of s s silly. It's silly. Yeah. Like, it, it definitely is. Like, oh, I'll, for sure. And you, I'll get into that now. He was born Ronald Wilson Reagan on February 6, 1911 in, in Tampico, Illinois. I think it's Tampico. His father, John Edward Jack Reagan, and his mother was Nellie Wilson Reagan, and also had an older brother named Neil. His nickname growing as a child was Dutch, and he was given that name by his father, apparently because he resembled a fat little Dutchman. All right, then. <laughs> he became a lifeguard at the age of 16. I'm skipping a lot because there's, other than like him moving around a lot as a kid, not much. He became a lifeguard at the age of 16, and for the six years he worked as one, he was involved in up to 77 rescues. Yeah. He attended Eureka College, majoring in economics and sociology. He gained a jack-of-all-trades reputation at Eureka, working in campus politics, in the theater, and as a cheerleader. But yeah, this was back in the days when uh, when um, males were mo mo cheerleaders were mostly males. I mean, there still are male cheerleaders, but Especially like... Especially in the States, like cheerleading is a definitely a different thing. <laughs> it's, like, it's a lot. A, it's a... Like it's a much bigger sport. Yeah, and uh, interestingly enough, he's not the only former cheerleader to become a president. Mm -mm. <laughs> um, he graduated from Eureka with a C grade average. To put that in perspective, I had a B hit, grade average. Hit us up on social media if you can guess who the other president was who was yeah, a cheerleader. Yeah, please do. He worked as a radio announcer in Iowa starting in 1932, reporting on the Chicago Cubs. While traveling with the Cubs in California, Reagan did a screen test for Warner Brothers and ended up with a seven-year contract. He initially starred in B-movies, where Reagan once joked, quote, they didn't want them good, they wanted them Thursday. <laughs> he would keep this kind of sense of humor for the rest of his life. He appeared in 19 films by the time of 1939, starring with the likes of Humphrey Bogart and Betty Davis. His breakout role was as college football star George the Gripper Grip in Nut Rockney, an All-American, which earned Reagan the nickname Gripper for the rest of his, for much of his life, which I think is kind of dumb, but eh, what do I know? Uh, 
He was also voted as the fifth most popular movie star in 1941. Reagan would recall that his favorite film that he ever acted in was King's Row in 1942. During this time, he had enlisted in the American Enlisted Reserve in 1937. He entered active duty in April 1942, but was classified as limited service due to his poor eyesight and was prevented from serving overseas. He worked at the San Francisco Port Embarked Embarkash, Embarkation, it's a weird word, in Fort Mason as a liaison officer. He transferred to the Army Air Force a month later and was assigned to the first motion picture unit, which that was a thing back then, yep. uh, working in public relations. He was promoted to first lieutenant in January 1943 and was later promoted to captain that July. On a brief side note, the motto for the motion picture unit was, We kill him with film. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. He was briefly assigned to the 6th War Loan Drive in New York City to campaign for war bonds in January 1944, but returned to the motion picture unit in November and remained there until the end of the war. He helped produce up to 400 training films for the Army Air Force during his tenure. Near the end of his service, he discovered a reel containing footage of the liberation of Auschwitz. He kept it in his possession for the rest of his life due to his concern people would begin doubting the Holocaust in later years. He was not wrong. Tragically. He married fellow actor Jane Wyman in 1940, but the marriage ended in divorce after, four, or after nine years. Wyman would later reveal the divorce was due to a disagreement in politics because at this time Reagan was still a Democrat and Wyman was a Republican. <laughs> they had two children together, Maureen and Michael. <laughs> he was elected to the board of directors of the Screen Actors Guild, or SAG, as I'm going to recall, name it as from now on, in 1941. He became vice president in 1946, and the following year, the SAG president and six board members resigned, and Reagan was subsequently elected president in a special election. He would be elected six more times, serving from 1947 to 52, and then from 1959 to 1960. During his early tenure, he testified before the House of Un-American Activities, claiming a group within SAG were working to steer union poli policies toward the use of, quote, communist-like tactics, end quote. He was a narc. Mm. <laughs> Lindsay mentioned this in a previous episode, in our first ever episode that Reagan narked on people. Yeah. So, unlike Gorbachev. Unlike Gorbachev, yeah. There's actually some interesting kind of like contrasts here. And it's interesting, too, because they're both kind of like the golden boys of their... Because of, like Reagan is seen as like you know golden American boy, right? Gorbachev kind of was, too, with his upbringing. Yeah, exactly. Reagan be became an FBI informant in 1946, where he would provide them with names of Independent Citizens Committee of the Arts and Science and Professions, or IACASP, members he believed to be communist sympathizers. However, he was unhappy with the way the FBI was using SAG and is quoted as saying, quote, Do they expect us to continue ourselves as a little... FBI of our own and determine just who is a commie and who isn't. He met a woman named Nancy Davis in 1949 
after she was mistakenly listed as a communist sympathizer and requested to have her name removed from the list. The two quickly hit it off and began dating. They married on March 4th, 1952, and they had two children, Patty and Ron Jr. <laughs> so that's how Ronald Reagan met Nancy, <laughs> which is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out the reason why she was on the list is because she was mistaken for another Nancy Davis. <laughs> so he starred in the 1951 film Bedtime for Bonzo with a chimp and fellow actress Diana Lynn. <laughs> However, he did not start in the sequel, Bonzo Goes to College. Oh, God. Oh, dear. <laughs> I will post the posters for both of these films wow. on the Facebook page because, holy shit. The Times people, they were so different. Bonzo, okay. Wow. Back, back on back on course. During the 1950s, Reagan was hired as the host of General Electric Theater, a drama anthology series that ran from 1953 until 1962. Reagan became more conservative during the 50s and registered as a Republican in 1962. He worked as a spokesman for Barry Goldwater's 1964 presidential campaign. During the push for Medicare legislation in 1961, Reagan narrated a recording for the American Medical Association in which he claimed if Medicare was passed, quote, we will wake up to find that we have socialism, end quote. His speeches during the Goldwater campaign gained him national recognition, becoming popular for his push for smaller government. He announced his run for governor of California in 1965. He pledged to, quote, send the welfare bums back to work and to, quote, clean up the mess at Berkeley, referring to the Berkeley-Vietnam War protesters. He defeated incumbent Pat Brown and was sworn in on January 2nd, 1967. His first act as governor was the freezing of government hiring and also approved tax increases in order to help balance the budget. Reagan clashed frequently with members of the protest movement. He ordered the California Highway Patrol to disperse the People's Park protest at Berkeley on May 15, 1969. The melee resulted in the death of student James Rector and left another protester, Alan Blanchard, blind. After, Reagan ordered 2,200 Gar National Guardsmen to occupy Berkeley, which lasted 17 days. Reagan signed in the Mulford Act into law, which forbade the carrying of loaded firearms in public. Reagan was re-elected in 1970. His second term was mostly a fight to keep capital punishment in California. It was deemed unconstitutional by the California Supreme Court in People v. Anderson, which immediately commuted all, life, all death sentences to life imprisonment. He declined to run for a third term and was succeeded by Democrat Jerry Brown, and he was the son of former Governor Pat Brown. Interesting fact about Jerry Brown is he also ran for election after Arnold Schwarzenegger and served another two terms. And as apparently he led California during one of its largest economic booms. Yeah, so I think he, he's actually pretty well regarded now. He's super well regarded. And apparently he did a lot of good as like during his third and fourth terms as governor. 
Reagan first ran for president in the 1976 Republican primaries against Gerald Ford. He came close, winning 23 contests. Reagan became the Republican nominee in 1980 and defeated incumbent Jimmy Carter, winning the popular vote by nearly 8 million and 489 electoral college votes and carrying 44 states. During his second run for president, he won every single state except Minnesota and D.C. Minnesota is the only state that did not vote for Reagan in either election. Well, their proud Democratic streak remains, really. Pretty much. But yeah, that's uh, that's Reagan up until this point. So you see what I mean by a bit more of a colorful... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> During the 1970s, there was a period of detente, which kind of meant that both the Soviet Union and the United States were sort of focused on trying to improve the overall geopolitical situation and ultimately minimizing the risk of nuclear annihilation and direct war. Not a bad goal. No. So there was just kind of basically what this meant was like functionally what this meant was there was just like a bit less um, antagonization of each other. There was just kind of like less propaganda and hatred a little like it simmered down for a minute. I took a break. Trade ties became established because, as I mentioned earlier, the Soviet Union had needed to start importing a lot of grain. And so 70% of their imports came from the United States. Wow. Yeah. So during the, that's when this was all established. The Helsinki Accords were held in 1975, which was really the culmination of steps to improve and expand political ties between NATO and Soviet bloc nations. A number of arms control agreements were also signed. There were also efforts by the U.S. to secure a peace treaty to end its participation in Vietnam, and Nixon's trip to China in an attempt to bring them in on the peace process was an attempt or was an important moment in altering cold, the Cold War dynamic between the USSR and the U.S. This period was certainly not without conflict, though, and there were skeptics on both sides about their efforts to work closer together. In the end, both sides actually started con- or really continued stockpiling nuclear arms during this period, along with delivery systems for those arms. The emergence of multiple independently targetable reentry vehicles, or MIRVs, radically increased both sides' killing capacity in the event of nuclear war and increased the possibility of preventive strike. Both sides also expressed interest in Afghanistan, and the eventual Soviet invasion, which we talked about again, triggered the official end of support for detente in the United States and provoked a series of retaliatory responses, such as withdrawing from the arms treaty of SALT II, which is Strategic Arms Limitation Talks. So during detente, there was two SALT negotiations. The first one was a signed treaty, and second was one that was in negotiations during this period. And then they entered Afghanistan, and the United States said, a new thank you, (laughs) and backed out. As well as putting an official embargo on exporting grain to the Soviets and selling arms to their rivals in Afghanistan, we discussed that last episode with Charlie Wilson and... CIA. The flashiest form of retaliation, though, came when the United States boycotted the 1980 Moscow Olympics. The U.S. first brought the idea up in December of 1979 at a NATO representatives meeting, and it was not a new idea, as proposals to boycott other Olympic Games had been culminating since the mid-1970s. The idea gained popularity in January of 1980, though, when a Soviet dissident named Andrei Sakharov also called for a boycott. Kind of gave more voice to it. On January 14, 1980, the Carter administration joined Sakharov's appeal and set a deadline by which the Soviets had to be out of Afghanistan or face consequences, including an international boycott of the games. And 
it's kind of, it sounds really silly, but the reason that this is so important is that since the Berlin Olympics in 1936, the Olympics have really become a platform to showcase your country, and it's like a big nationalist statement. And so boycotting the games is actually a way more important statement than it sounds like. Yeah. Just for context, in case anyone's curious. Was it the first boycott, and it wasn't the last boycott? No. I don't uh, know if you know, know this. This is just a brief tangent, but the first boycott of the Olympics was in 76. Yeah. I didn't know that, actually. And the reason why is because they allowed apartheid South Africa to play, so a bunch of South, a bunch of African countries refused to yeah. participate. So, Which is when it's, yeah. And then, well, that's kind of when, like, there were proposals to boycott, right? That's, right. Anyway, on January 26th, Canadian Prime Minister Joe Clark, Joe who? <laughs> announced that Canada would join the boycott if the Soviets did not leave Afghanistan by February 20th, 1980. So basically they gave the Soviets a month to get all of their shit and get out of Afghanistan. <laughs> the Soviets weren't really interested in that, though. Uh, Carter also proposed moving the games to Greece on a permanent basis to eliminate the issue of the politi- politicization of the games hosting. But the IOC said, no, thank you. We like making tons of money. I mean, that's what I assume they said, because they did say, but they did say no in the, in the <laughs> yeah. end. When the deadline passed a month later, Carter pushed the U.S. Aller, pushed the U.S.'s allies to pull their Olympic teams from the games. Late that January, the Soviet regime prepared to face down the, quote, hostile campaign. The Soviets were relying on the IOC and its 89-member committees to behave as, as it had in the past, which is to say, ignore Soviet transgressions like Hungary in 1956 and Czechoslovakia, and not give in to pressure from national governments. So they were kind of just hoping that the IOC would do what it normally does and just sort of avert their eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Central Committee documents show that the government and National Olympic Committee of France had already stated a willingness to participate, though. So it was kind of working. There were a number of discussions and attempts to save the games from a boycott, but Carter remained adamant and put considerable pressure on NATO member states to support it. Those nations' support, though, was not actually that universal. The International Olympics Federation protested that the pressure being applied to by the U.S. to other nations was an inappropriate means to achieve a political end, and the athletes would become the victims, which is true. Is true. Even though they boycotted, West German Chancellor Helmut Schmidt said the American attitude that the Allies should, quote, simply do as they are told was unacceptable. So there was just like, even though countries still chose to boycott, they didn't really feel good about it, which is interesting to me. I believe the British athletes were allowed to go and compete, just not under the British flag. That's usually how it goes, I yeah. think. Like, right now, with Russia being banned because of, you know, all the drugs. <laughs> uh, not the good drugs. Not the good kind. Well, I mean, the good kind if you want to perform well, I guess. But, right now, like, Russian athletes who are proven to be super, like, they're proven to be clean, have never participated, blah, 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 can participate under a uh, the IOC banner. Yeah. They did last time, too, like in Korea. Mm-hmm. But we'll see. Well, they're probably going to do the same this year because they got banned again. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, But we'll see how many actually go. Yeah, true. Especially because the Summer Olympics are the worst yeah. of all of it. Yeah. Track and field is like the biggest. Anyway, track yeah. and field and cycling are the biggest. I just I want mean, to mention something really funny about the 84 Olympics. Because in the 84 Olympics, uh, the Soviet... And Warsaw Pact, most of the Warsaw Pact countries boycotted that. And because of that, McDonald's ended up losing like millions of dollars because they had a promotion yeah. where they were like, if, if they went, if any 
a sport that the Americans win a medal in, you'll get a certain prize. And some of them like was like for a free meal, yeah, and whatnot. And then the Soviets boycotted. So their main competition and, was gone. Yeah, and then the Americans won like a million medals. Yeah, they won like hundreds of medals. Like the most medals I think they've ever won out of the yeah. games. <laughs> so McDonald's lost millions of dollars on this promotion. And they parody it so well in The Simpsons with Krusty. Uh, oh, Krusty yeah. Burgers. It's so fucking funny. And I, like at the, near the end, Krusty's like saying, I'm going to spit in every 12th burger. <laughs> so, anyway. Funny tangent, sorry, go on. Yeah, anyway. Uh, the election of one Ronald Reagan also signified a turning point in the relationship between the two superpowers, as Reagan was aggressive in his anti-communism. Carter had initiated the military buildup after the invasion of Afghanistan, but it was under Reagan that the U.S. would aggressively build up its nuclear stockpile, which marked a renewed period of competition in place of cooperation. One way in which Reagan took initiative to flank the Soviets was with the Strategic Defense Initiative, or SCI. Essentially, this was meant to be a mechanism armed with an array of space-based lasers, which would detect and deflect any nuclear missiles headed towards the United States. Reagan saw this as a safeguard against the nuclear annihilation everyone had been fearing in a really very real way for decades at this point. So it's kind of understandable. He first announced on March 23, 1983, and called upon U.S. scientists who, quote, gave us nuclear weapons to turn their great talents to the cause of, manca- of mankind and world peace, to give us the means of rendering these nuclear weapons impotent and obsolete. Now imagine that in his voice. Uh, <laughs> mine's not as nice, actually. He had a really good, you like... A kind of soft and, like... I, yeah. I'm thinking it sounds sound too sexy, but yeah. Yeah. It was somewhat doomed from the start, though, as politicians and scientists both argued that it was a lot ambitious... There were a ton of technical hurdles, including a number of proposed designs and weapons. It wasn't just space-based lasers. These hurdles seemed so incredible at the time that Senator Edward Kennedy referred to it as, quote, reckless Star Wars schemes after the movie, of course. The Star Wars moniker stuck, and over the course of 10 years, the government spent $30 billion on developing the concept. It was a futuristic project that remained futuristic because Bill Clinton scrapped it in 1993 because $30 billion freaking dollars. Jesus. I mean, I guess there's no price high enough for the, to stop the fear of nuclear annihilation, but Jesus. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's understandable, though, why such a program would be appealing, because it, it wouldn't have been comforting to know that at any given moment, hundreds of ballistic nuclear weapons are pointed at the United States at any given time. Yeah. And probably still are. Yeah, really, they are. And so it's not com- it's not really comforting, and so I understand why something like the proposal would be like, or like the SDI would be like, oh, sweet, because that just takes away all of that. Anyway, it did not work. The Soviets were obviously concerned um, and had a program of their own, and it also failed. They did manage to get lasers into space, but they weren't really functioning, and it was actually more of a propaganda measure because people were focused on the U.S. SDI projects and they were scared, so the Soviets were like, shit, we need to do something. And they also, I think, like legitimately believed that the Americans were going to do it and actually like, execute, and so they did legitimately try hard, but yeah. In the end, it kind of broke the Soviet Union, so there's actually like an argument to be made 
that the entire space missile protection thing was really kind of a propaganda war between the two countries with the intention of ruining each other financially. Yeah, and it like, worked. Kind and, of it, worked. and it worked. Yeah. And like the problem ultimately for the Soviet Union was that the Americans just had deeper pockets. Yeah. Like the, and I don't want to give Reagan that much credit because I don't know for sure, but there is a lot to suggest that like they kept the program going in part because the longer they kept it going, the longer the Soviets would. So the more money they would spend too. Yeah, I think of, that's the main reason. It was why. kind of a war of attrition as well. Yeah, I don't even. I and even, and it's it's like the threat too, right? Like if we get one, then you have to get one. So it's like. They were trying, but it was also like they kept going for so long because they wanted each other to suspend each other into ruin. Yeah. Yeah. That's like economic warfare is pretty... Common. It's a lot more common now, that's for sure. Yeah. So. so at this point, yeah, detente is done. And Ronald Reagan came out swinging, <laughs> as he always did. He had a lot of famous speeches, though, let's be real. Reagan had fighting words for... For the, for the Soviet Union, he ultimately kind of rejected the notion that the Soviet Union and the United States were equally responsible for the ongoing arms race. And he asserted that the conflict was a battle between good and evil. He believed, yeah, he was really like, really on that. And, uh, yeah, a guy from a country who was supporting Conchos in Nicaragua who were murdering innocent civilians. Yeah, that guy. Says it's a battle between good and evil. Yeah, that guy. So in 19... Anyway, so he started referring to the Soviet Union as the evil empire. And this first came up in a speech that he gave in 1983 to the National Association of Evangelicals in Orlando, Florida. Because of course it's in Florida. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The speech became known as the evil empire speech. And in that speech he said, quote... Yes, let us pray for the salvation of all of those who live in that totalitarian darkness. Pray they will discover the joy of knowing God. But until they do, let us be aware that while they preach the supremacy of the state, declare its omnipotence over individual man and predict its eventual domination of all peoples on the earth, they are the focus of evil in the modern world. So in your discussions of the nuclear freeze proposals, I urge you to beware the temptation of pride, the temptation of blithely uh, declaring yourselves above it all and label both sides equally at fault, to ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, to simply call the arms race a giant misunderstanding and thereby remove yourself from the struggle between right and wrong and good and evil. Fired up there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in the evil empire speech, uh, it also dealt with some domestic issues, but Reagan made the rallying cry, or, well, not really a rallying cry, but he made a case for deploying NATO nuclear armed missiles in Western Europe as a response to the Soviets installing new nuclear armed missiles in Eastern Europe. Eventually, the NATO missiles were set up and used as bargaining chips and arms talks with Gorbachev. And yeah, they, the first SALT agreement yeah. happened as a result of this. In the preceding year, in 1983, it became known as the year of crisis because it was literally one crisis after another. It was bad. Not necessarily all relating to Russia, but mostly relating to Russia. So the first major incident happened in September of 1983. 
Just after midnight on August 31st, 1983, Korean Airlines Flight 007 took off from JFK International Airport in New York, bound for Seoul, South Korea, with a stopover in Anchorage, Alaska. On board were 246 passengers and 23 crew. Following takeoff from Anchorage, air traffic control advised a deviation from the flight route saying, quote, proceed direct Bethel when able. And Bethel is a town in Alaska that is used as a navigational point for aircraft. For those of you who don't know, a lot of um, Oriental flights go over Alaska. So Alaska is a major communications hub for airline traffic. The new route flew directly over the Kamchatka Peninsula in the Soviet Union. According to the Soviets, Cal 007 flew over restricted airspace over Kamchatka, which had a 200-kilometer buffer zone over it. In response, Soviet fighters were scrambled to intercept. One key issue believed to be critical in the incident was Arctic gales had knocked out the radar in the area, and officials had lied to Moscow the issue had been fixed when it actually had not been. As Soviet Air Force captain and defector to the West, Alexander Zuyez, explained in an interview on 60 Minutes, quote, some people lied to Moscow trying to save their ass, end quote. Soviet fighters managed to intercept the plane soon after it left Kamchatka and re-entered neutral waters. The aircrafts were three Su-15s and a MiG-23. One of the pilots fired warning shots, but later admitted he fired four bursts of armor-piercing rounds instead of incendiary shells, meaning it was unlikely the plane spotted them. The last contact with Cal 007 was with Tokyo Air Control Center, where they requested to ascend to higher flight levels, which was granted. The plane began to climb and slow down. This move was misinterpreted by the Soviet fighters to be an evasive maneuver. Under pressure from General Valery Kamensky, commander of the Soviet Far East District Air Defense Forces, to shoot down the aircraft, the lead fighter managed to return to position and fire an air-to-air missile at Cal 007. As the plane descended, the pilot later recalled seeing blinking lights and said, quote, I saw two rows of windows and knew that this was a Boeing. I knew this was a civilian plane, but to me, this meant nothing. It was easy to turn a civilian type of plane into one for military use, end quote. The plane broke apart midair and crashed into the Sea of Japan, west of the Soviet-controlled Sakhalin Island. All souls on board perished on impact, including Larry McDonald, who was a U.S. representative from Georgia. South Korean officials immediately notified the United States and Japan of the loss of Cal 007, and it was instantly suspected the plane had been shot down. Since South Korea designated Japan and the U.S. to have jurisdiction for salvage operations, this meant either country could use force against the Soviets if necessary, should the latter attempt to retrieve any parts of the plane. Needless to say, the shootdown caused a major international incident and brought the Cold War to one of the highest points of tension in its lifetime. Initially, the Soviets denied the shootdown, but later admitted it, but claiming the plane was conducting a spy mission. This was fiercely denied, and actually seems really unlikely that it's, it's bullshit that this is the case. To be fair, following the incident, the South Korean government initially announced the plane had been forced to land by the Soviets, and all on board were alive and safe. 
giving false hopes to people. In response, NATO deployed Pershing II medium ballistic missiles and cruise missiles to West Germany. Furthermore, anti-Soviet sentiments skyrocketed following the incident, especially in the United States and South Korea. In a speech on September 5th, Reagan denounced the attack, dubbing it the, quote, Korean airline massacre and calling it a crime against humanity, quote, that must never be forgotten. The U.S. altered future flight paths out of Alaska to the Asia Pacific following the incident. Furthermore, Reagan made access to the U.S. global positioning system in order to prevent a further tragedy from ever occurring. Here's where things get really, really, really scary because while all the tension from this was going on, which lasted for the rest of 1983, on the morning of September 26, 1983, the Soviet early warning system detected a single incoming missile strike originating from the United States. The officer on duty was Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov, whose duty was to immediately report the launch detection to his superiors. Instead, he decided to ignore the alarm, believing it to be an error in the system. He is quoted later as saying, If I had sent my report up the chain of command, nobody would have said a word against it. End quote. His reasoning had been that due to the lack, it made no sense that the Americans, or anyone for that matter, would just launch a single missile. Even after a further five alarms, he decided not to act, believing it to be an error. Thankfully, he was correct. The computer encountered an error due to a rare alignment of the, of the sunlight through high-altitude clouds affecting the satellite's detection system. Once the incident became known, Petrov was brought in for questioning by his superiors. Commander of the Air Force Defense's Missile Defense Unit, General Yuri Votinstev actually thanked Petrov for not acting and even made efforts to have him rewarded. However, Petrov was not rewarded for his actions despite how it like it saved the fucking world, people, yeah. by not acting. However, he was not punished for not reacting. Which is kind of like a reward in the Soviet Union. Pretty much. The incident, incident did not become public knowledge until 1991 when Votinev Votinstev revealed what had happened. Today, Petrov is known as the man who saved the world. He passed away on May 19th, 2017. In relative, like, he definitely doesn't have the fame he deserves. No. Like, you guys don't understand, like, this. He basically said, he said in an interview that there was only a 50-50 chance that he was working that night, and he happened to be the one working that night and he has no idea what would have happened otherwise if yeah. anyone else was working we probably wouldn't be here yes but yeah and to also make this like why this would be such an alarming thing and why people would probably be justified in mistaking this for an attack because this was still in the midst of anger over cal 007 so yeah awkward yeah so brief history, there is a series of NATO exercises known as Able Archer, and there are command post exercises conducted by NATO military powers in Europe to test the command and control procedures, particularly the changeover from conventional warfare over to the use of weapons of mass destruction, which include chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons. 
On November 7, 1983, the annual Able Archer proceeded as scheduled, with coordination happening from the Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe in Castel, Belgium. Unlike the previous years, however, Able Archer 83 made several additions to the exercise, including the use of coded communication, radio silences, and even the participation of heads of state. This, topped with the increasing tensions between the Americans and Soviets, raised alarm in the Soviet Union due to the increased realism of that year's exercise. Able Archer 83 scenario detailed the, a Middle Eastern crisis had crippled the Soviet oil supplies. Furthermore, Yugoslavia had decided to align with the West, which panicked the Soviets into believing the remainder of the Balkan states would follow suit and abandon the Warsaw Pact. In retaliation, the Soviets deployed tanks into Yugoslavia, and then into Scandinavia. Lastly, Soviet troops poured into Western Europe, outnumbering NATO forces. After, quote-unquote, months of fighting, the Western governments authorized the use of nuclear weapons. As the scenario continues, a medium-range nuclear missile is launched at Kiev, destroying the city. This is meant as a warning in hopes that the Soviets would back down. The scenario ended with the global nuclear arsenal launched, wiping out civilization. Of course, this was just the conducted scenario, and obviously it never happens. But it is quite scary to know that, you know what, even in the scenario, the end solution is that everyone dies. In the Soviet Union, officials detected the simulated attack on November 7th. Furthermore, they detected a higher frequency of encoded communications between the Americans and the British. Higher troop activity was noticed by the Soviets as troops were participating in drills on NATO bases, including Air Force armament procedures. When the simulation was of bringing the DEFCON level from 5 to 1 commenced, KGB agents panicked, believing it to be real. They reported the situation to Moscow, sending the nuclear arsenal on high alert. However, everything was brought down after able archers ended on November 11th, and suddenly everything just went back to normal as if nothing had happened. NATO officials were unaware of the Soviet reaction until double agent Oleg Gordonevsky reported what happened to the British SIS. There's one more brief thing I want to talk about, and this is not has not to do with the year of, of crisis, but it gives you a further insight into uh, Mr. Reagan's mindset so just briefly reagan was on a he made week what was it he made scheduled radio announce addresses from his vacation home in california during uh his speech on at 906 a.m on august 11th 1984 he made a joke before he believed they were recording in which he said and i quote my fellow Americans, I am pleased to tell you today that I have signed legislation that will outlaw Russia forever. We begin bombing in five minutes. So this is like, apparently, this, according to the source, this is something Reagan would normally do is he would inject sound checks. He would make purposeful outtakes and during his downtime, he would humor people and he would make this. It was kind of like his soundtrack in a way. Yeah. What he did not realize and what the people in the room did not realize is that the remarks were recorded. And CBS News and Cable News Network had copies because they were the ones recording. 
and they kept the pre- but they kept the president's remarks under wraps. However, there were rumors that this joke was made, probably by people who knew. By August 13th, the actual quotation had been published by outlets such as Garnett. So it was known. And needless to say, it kind of, it, it became a worldwide story. And it pissed the Soviet Union off because considering how, well, it, it pissed a lot of people off in America as well. Uh, because it's like, okay, you're making such jokes like this when last year we came like so close to coming to nuclear annihilation. Like an inch of our fucking lives. Thanks, Reagan. Yeah. But yeah. But something was going a lot differently for a certain yeah. someone in Soviet land. Yes. <laughs> Soviet land. Uh, so when Brezhnev died in 1982, Yuri Andropov succeeded him as general secretary of the Soviet Union, the de facto head of the government. Gorbachev as in, was enthusiastic about the appointment as they had been friends over the years, like I mentioned. Again, head of the KGB, important friend. Gorbachev was a bit naive and hoped Andropov would introduce liberalizing reforms, but instead Andropov really just shuffled paper and personnel rather than changing anything structurally. Just to be expected. Either way, he became Andropov's closest ally in the Politburo meetings. Andropov encouraged Gorbachev to expand into policy areas other than agriculture, preparing him for higher office. In 1983, Gorbachev delivered the annual speech remarking the birthday of Lenin, which required him to reread Lenin's later writings in which he had recalled, called for reform in the context of the new economic policy of the 1920s, where essentially they could have some capitalism in the form of all state-owned companies could be for profit. These papers would heavily influence Gorbachev and further convinced him that reform was needed. That May, he went to Canada and met with Pierre Elliott Trudeau and spoke to the parliament. He befriended Soviet ambassador to Canada, Alexander Yakovlev. He would later become an important ally. Not even two years after the death of Brezhnev, Andropov also died. On his deathbed, he indicted, or indicated that he wanted Gorbachev to succeed him, but the rest of the Central Committee thought that 53 was too young and inexperienced, and they went with Konstantin Chernenko. Chernenko was a long-standing friend of Brezhnev, but he was also in poor health. Great choice. He was often too sick to chair Politburo meetings, which was awkward as the leader, and Gorbachev stepped in at the last minute, so made himself look really good in the absence of the leader. Gorbachev, being not an idiot, continued to cultivate allies both in the Kremlin and beyond. He gave the main speech at a conference on Soviet ideology, but pissed off the crowd by implying that the country required reform. Stuck to his guns, I'll give him that. He's a brave man. He was. In April 1984, he was appointed chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee of the Soviet Legislature, a largely honorary position. He traveled a lot in 1984, including a visit in December to Britain, where he met with Margaret Thatcher. Thatcher heard that Gorbachev was a reformer and wanted to meet him. At the end of the meeting, she was quoted as saying, I like Mr. Gorbachev. We can do business together. (laughs) That's a very Maggie thing to say. Yeah. Gorbachev hoped that his visit would help erode Andrei Gromenko's dominance of Soviet foreign policy while also sending the message to the U.S. that he wanted to improve their relationship. Sending love notes. Aww. By meeting with Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, Chernenko died in March of 1985, and it was the second death of a leader within a year and a third within two, and the Soviets were de- deep into a period of stagnation. It was clear that some kind of change was needed. Gromyko proposed Gorbachev as the next general secretary, and as a long-standing party member, his recommendation carried some weight. 
Gorbachev expected opposition to his nomination, but ultimately the rest of the Politburo succeeded him, or sorry, supported him. They elected him unanimously, as they wanted him over another elderly leader. Good call. Mm. Um, he thus became the eighth leader of the Soviet Union. Gorbachev was a clearly a reformer, but few expected him to be as radical as he proved to be. And even though he wasn't well-known, he was at least believed to be not elderly and dying, so at least he had that going for him. His first public appearance was at Chernenko's Red Square funeral. Yeah, sorry, I, I like that. They're like, well, he's too young. Let's go with an older guy, and then the older guy dies. I'm like, okay. Well, yeah, shit. <laughs> okay, well, he's, right? he's 55 now, it's fine. Yeah, right, lesson learned, okay. He's 55, he's fine, he's okay. It's fine, <laughs> it's fine now. His first public appearance was at Chernenko's Red Square funeral, which was held on March 14th. His leadership style was much different than those of his predecessors. Surprise, surprise. He would talk to civilians in the street, forbade the public display of his portrait at the 1985 Red Square holiday celebrations, and encouraged open and frank discussions at Politburo meetings. His wife was his closest advisor, as she was also hella smart, and took on the unofficial role of First Lady by appearing with him on foreign trips. Her visibility was a breach of standard practices, and she was re resented for that. So it wasn't really common for the so head of like the Soviet leader's wife to do anything in the public eye, and Raiza was quite public. He was also smart, though, and knew he could only go so far in his reforms without a majority of supporters in the Politburo. He encouraged older members into retirement and promoted Gromyko to head of, the st head of state, which was largely a ceremonial role with little influence, while simultaneously moving his ally, Edward Shevardnadze. Oh, God. I can't say it. Edward insert last name, to Gromyko's former post in charge of foreign policy. He hired a number of his allies, including one Boris Yeltsin, who was made secretary of the Central Committee in July 1985. Most of these appointees were from a new generation of well-educated officials who had been frustrated during the Brezhnev era. He replaced 14 of 23 heads of department and secretariat within the first year. In doing so, he secured dominance in the Politburo faster, er, within a year, which is faster than either Stalin, Khrushchev, or Brezhnev had achieved. He was a shrewd politician, Mikhail Gorbachev. <laughs> His two main policies were perestroika and glasnost, or restructuring and openness. The term perestroika was first used publicly in March 1984, and he saw perestroika as encompassing a complex series for reforms to restructure society and the economy. He was worried about the country's low productivity, poor work ethic, and inferior quality goods. He was worried that the stagnation gripping all aspects of the country would lead to the country becoming a second-rate power and would finally really you know, cede superiority to the United States. The first stage of Gorbachev's perestroika was acceleration, a term he used regularly in the first two years of his leadership. The Soviet Union was behind the U.S. in a lot of areas of production, but Gorbachev claimed that it would accelerate to match the industrial output of the U.S. by the year 2000. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um... The purpose of reform is to prop up the centrally planned economy, not actually switch to market socialism. He was quoted in a speech in 1985 as saying, quote, Many of you see the solution to your problems in resorting to market mechanisms in place of direct planning. Some of you look at the market as a lifesaver for your economies. But comrades, you should not think about lifesavers, but the ship, and the ship is socialism. His perestroika also entailed attempts to move away from technocratic management of the economy by increasingly involving the labor force in industrial production. He believed that once freed from the strong control of central planners, state-owned enterprises would act as market agents. 
Gorbachev and co. didn't expect any opposition to the reforms, but there were some public perceptions that many bureaucrats were just paying lip service to the reforms and not actually and like trying to undermine them. Another issue at the time, alcohol consumption in the Soviet Union had risen steadily between 1950 and 1985. And really, by the time it reached the 80s, it was like a big problem. It still is, actually. Yuri Andropov had actually created a program that he was going to implement to try and limit alcohol consumption. But, and Gorbachev thought it was a good idea, so he put it in. So alcohol was controlled in a more strict fashion, raising drinking ages and prices, reducing production, as well as tougher penalties for workplace drunkenness. Crime rates did fall, and life expectancy grew slightly between 1986 and 1987, but moonshine production also rose considerably, and the reform ended up costing the Soviet economy in the end, resulting in losses of up to $100 billion between 1985 and 1990. He later considered the program to be a failure and ended it in 1988. So prohibition does not work. Cool. In his second year, he began talking of, or sorry, began speaking of glasnost or openness. This meant greater openness in government affairs to allow for some debate and differing views in political debates, the press, and Soviet culture. He saw glasnost as a necessary measure to ensure perestroika by alerting the Soviet populace to the, enti- the nature of the country's problems in the hope that they would help support his efforts to fix them. Makes sense. Glasnost boosted his domestic popularity, but alarmed the communist hardliners, obviously. For many Soviet citizens, though, this newfound level of freedom of speech and press and the revelations about the country's past that came with that, it was uncomfortable for them. I mean, all of a sudden, the the curtain's being pulled, and you're like, oh, oh, that's what's happening. Okay. Mm. Not cool. Bit shocking. Some felt that he was not going far enough in, in his reforms, though, and that actually included one Boris Yeltsin. In terms of foreign policy, though, one of the most important meetings was in Geneva, Switzerland, with U.S. President Ronald Reagan in 1985. Both countries wanted to cut the number of nuclear weapons with the Soviets, seeking to have the number of nuclear-equipped bombers and missiles, and to protect the rights to have defensive systems. So the meeting took place on November 19th, 1985, and it was actually the first time that our two protagonists met. And they held talks, ultimately, uh, just on relations and mostly the arms race. The meeting was held at a chateau rented by His Highness the Aga Khan. Gorbachev later said, quote, We viewed Geneva, the Geneva meeting realistically without grand expectations, yet we, hope, we hoped to lay the foundations for a serious dialogue in the future. Similar to former President Eisenhower in 1955, Reagan believed that a personal relationship among leaders was the necessary first step to breaking down the barriers of tension that existed between the two countries. His goal was to convince Gorbachev that America desired peace above all else. Reagan... <laughs> described the hopes for the summit as, quote, a mission for peace. The first thing Reagan said to Gorbachev was, quote, the United States and the Soviet Union are the two greatest countries on Earth, the superpowers. They are the only ones who can start World War III, but also the only two countries that could bring peace to the world. He then emphasized the personal similarities between the two leaders, with both being born in similar, quote, rural hamlets in the middle of their respective countries, and there's great responsibilities that they held. The first meeting exceeded their time limit by over half an hour. A Reagan assistant asked Secretary of State George Schultz whether he should interrupt the meeting to end it by its allotted time. Schultz responded, quote, if you think so, then you shouldn't have this job. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The first day, Mikhail Gorbachev argued that the United States did not trust them and its ruling class was trying to keep the people uneasy. Ronald Reagan countered that the Soviets had been acting aggressively and suggested the Soviets were overly paranoid about the United States. 
The Soviets had refused to allow the American planes to use Soviet airfields in post-World War II Germany. So they broke for lunch, and Reagan promised Gorbachev that he would have a chance to rebut. They talked outside for about two hours on the Strategic Defense Initiative, but they both stood firm on their positions. Gorbachev accepted Reagan's invitation to the United States in a year, and Reagan was invited to do the same in 1987. On the second day, Reagan went after human rights, saying that he did not want to tell Gorbachev how to run his country, but that he should ease up on the emigration restrictions. Gorbachev claimed the Soviets were comparable to the United States and quoted some feminists. Feminist icon, Mikhail Gorbachev. <laughs> the next session started with arguments about the arms race, then went back to SDI, and then they eventually agreed to a joint, a joint statement. The two leaders held similar meetings over the next few years to discuss further topics, and then Gorbachev ultimately held a summit with George H.W. One, sort of one of the next talks also that they met in was in Reykjavik, Iceland. There was a meeting between, uh, again, Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev, and it was held in October 1986, which is a dicey time to go to Iceland for weather. <laughs> the talks collapsed at the last minute, but the progress that had been achieved was, you know, good. So anyways, in 86, Gorbachev had proposed banning all ballistic missiles, but Reagan wanted to continue research on the Strategic Defense Initiative, which involved the militarization of outer space. Ugh. Yeah. Soviet suspicion of SDI continued, for a good reason. And U.S.-Soviet relations were strained, naturally. But at Reykjavik, Reagan sought to include discussion of human rights, emigration of Soviet Jews and dissidents, and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Gorbachev sought to limit the talks solely to arms control. The Soviets acceded to the double-zero proposal for eliminating INF weapons from Europe, as initially proposed by President Reagan in November 1981, INF denoting intermediate-range nuclear forces as distinct from ICBMs or inter intercontinental ballistic missiles. The Soviets also proposed to eliminate 50% of all strategic arms, including ICBMs, and agreed not to include the British or French weapons in, in the count. All of this was proposed in exchange for an American pledge not to implement strategic defenses for the next 10 years in accordance with the first strategic arms limitation talks, SALT-1. The Americans countered with a proposal to eliminate all ballistic missiles within 10 years, but required the right to deploy strategic defenses against remaining threats afterwards. Gorbachev then suggested eliminating all nuclear weapons within a decade. However, Gorbachev, citing a desire to strengthen the anti-ballistic missile treaty, added the condition that any SDI research be confined to laboratories for the 10-year period in question. Reagan argued that, that his proposed SDI research was allowed by any reasonable interpretation of the ABM theory or treaty, and that he could not forget the pledge he made to the Americans to investigate whether SDI was viable. He also promised to share SDI technology, a promise which Gorbachev said he doubted would be fulfilled. Makes sense. As the Americans would not even share oil drilling technology. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds about right. The talks eventually stalled with President Reagan asking if General Secretary Gorbachev would turn down a historic opportunity because of a single word, referring to his insistence on laboratory testing. Gorbachev asserted that it was a matter of principle, and the summit concluded. Despite getting unexpectedly close to the potential elimination of all nuclear weapons, the meeting adjourned with no agreement. But both sides discovered the extent of the concessions the other side was willing to make, so that's positive. Human rights became a su subject of productive discussion for the first time. An agreement by Gorbachev to on-site inspections, a continuing American demand which had not been achieved in the partial test ban treaty of 1963 or the a ABM or SALT pact. 
Um, and that also can, was a big step forward. Yeah, it was a, a very, one of the most important summits. Another very brief but important event occurred in June 1987. Reagan had a scheduled visit in Rome and Venice for an economic summit and then was supposed to head back to the United States. However, the West Berlin government decided to take advantage of his visit and requested that he visit Berlin, which Reagan agreed to do so. It was arranged for Reagan to spend a few hours in Berlin and make a speech at the Berlin Wall in front of Brandenburg Gate. It was estimated a crowd of 10,000 people would attend. The day before the visit, upwards of 50,000 people demonstrated against the visit in protest of American foreign policy. This forced the shutdown of part of the subway line and several districts in order to deter further protests from growing, though the demonstration had gone on without major incident. On June 2nd, the Reagans were brought on a tour of the Reichstag. They were given a view of the wall from the upper balcony of the building. At 2 p.m., Reagan walked onto the stage before a mass crowd of spectators with President Richard von Weizsäcker, Chancellor Helmut Kohl, and West Berlin Mayor Ebhard Diepgen. And I'm now going to play you a probably the most famous part of the, of the speech. So. Now the Soviets themselves may in a limited way be coming to understand the importance of freedom. We hear much from Moscow about a new policy of reform and openness. Some political prisoners have been released. Certain foreign news broadcasts are no longer being jammed. Some economic enterprises have been permitted to operate with greater freedom from state control. Are these the beginnings of profound changes in the Soviet state, or are they token gestures intended to raise false hopes in the West or to strengthen the Soviet system without changing it? We welcome change and openness, for we believe that freedom and security go together, that the advance of human liberty the advance of human liberty can only strengthen the cause of world peace. There is one sign the Soviets can make that would be unmistakable, that would advance dramatically the cause of freedom and peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, Come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. <laughs> Mr. Gorbachev, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. There's nothing more iconic about Reagan than those words, yeah. A lesser known but rather important part of the speech includes Reagan calling for an end to the arms race, in which he referred to the SS-20 Soviet nuclear weapons, saying the two sides should commit to, quote, 
not merely of limiting the growth of arms, but of eliminating for the first time an entire class of nuclear weapon from the face of the earth. This was basically, I guess, a signal to Gorbachev that he was willing to re-enter negotiations. The two of them met again, in this time in December 1987, in Washington. There had been obviously like the previous negotiations, and they'd figure out what kind of concessions each side was willing to make. Negotiations started to heat up again after the Reykjavik summit. And so really like less than a year later, Gorbachev had proposed uh, deeper and more fundamental changes in their relationship. They continued to discuss things aided by West Germany because Helmut Kohl was real interested in making this go away. Yeah. Um, initially, Kohl had opposed the total elimination of the Pershing missiles, uh, claiming that such a move would increase his nation's vulnerability to an attack by Warsaw Pact forces, but the treaty text was eventually agreed to in September 1987. And on December 1987, the treaty was officially signed by President Reagan and General Secretary Gorbachev. And the treaty that was signed is known as the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, or the INF Treaty. It's like a landmark deal. It banned all of the two nations' land-based ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, and missile launchers with ranges of 500 to 1,000 kilometers, short, medium range, and 1,000 to 5,000 kilometers, intermediate range. The treaty did not apply to air or sea launch missiles, so submarines and stuff. In May 1991, the nations had eliminated 2,692 missiles, followed by 10 years of on-site verification inspections, which is a big deal. Very successful. Yeah. So between May 29th and June 3rd, 1988, Reagan made a visit to Moscow in order to finalize the INF Treaty, which had been ratified by the, by the U.S. Senate earlier that May. The summit got off to kind of a rocky start after Reagan continued to make pressures to Gorbachev to improve human rights in the Soviet Union, you know, just, just as you do. Mm. However, regardless, both men remained optimistic over the talks. Reagan and his delegation were given an official tour of Red Square on May 31st, which was a media sensation around the world. Moscow citizens also gathered to view Reagan and Gorbachev and applauded as the two men approached. Both men spoke with reporters and citizens and joked with one another, while also stressing the importance of the occasion and the relationship they were building. Reagan even at one point wrapped his arm over Gorbachev's shoulder. Aww. It's cute. At one point, Reagan was asked by a reporter if he still believed he was in an evil empire. Reagan replied, quote, No. I was talking about another time, another era. Seven agreements were signed during the summit, which included Soviet-American student exchanges and fishing rights in the Bering Strait. The former resulted in the canceling of history lectures in the Soviet secondary schools in order to give time to update the Soviet history books. Bilateral talks included resolving issues regarding Central America, South Southern Africa, and the Middle East, as well as further plan the inevitable withdrawal of Soviet troops from Afghanistan. Both sides also reaffirmed their commitment to the Threshold Test Ban Treaty of 1974 and the Peaceful Nuclear Explosions Treaty of 1976, which seems weird, peaceful nuclear explosions, right. with plans to negotiate further limitations on nuclear testing, which would eventually lead to a complete end in to testing in order to further disarmament. Unfortunately, neither side were able to come to an agreement to progress nuclear 
disarmament even further. On the final day of the visit, Reagan made a speech at Moscow State University to a crowd of Russian students and intellectuals. He acclaimed the culture and cultural accomplishments of the Soviet Union with an emphasis on its literature. He also pushed forward the idea freedom was key to progress. An interesting aspect of the visit was when Reagan gave Gorbachev a copy of the 1956 film Friendly Persuasion. What's so ironic about this is that the film's screenwriter, Michael Wilson, found himself blacklisted in the 50s due to suspicion of being a communist sympathizer. So there's that. Yeah. Gorbachev was ousted from power. We'll be talking about that yeah. in, in a couple of Yeah, we'll talk about it later. So. so after he was ousted from power, um, he obviously had a lot more time to spend with his wife and family. Uh, him and Raisa initially lived in their dilapidated dacha, but they were allowed to privatize their apartment, so they made some money that way. He focused on establishing his International Foundation for Socioeconomic and Political Studies, or the Gorbachev Foundation, which launched in March 1992. The initial tasks were in analyzing and publishing material on the history of perestroika, as well as defending the policy from what it called, quote, slander and falsifications. The foundation also tasked itself with monitoring and critiquing life in post-Soviet Russia, presenting alternate forms of development to those pursued by Yeltsin. In 1990, so essentially it's a think tank. Yeah. And they do some charitable stuff too, though. In 1993, Gorbachev launched Green Cross International, which focused on encouraging sustainable futures, and then the World Political Forum. He he basically, to pay for all of this, he lectured internationally, charged pretty large fees to do it. In 1992, he toured the U.S. in a Forbes private jet to raise money. During the trip, he met with the Reagans on their ranch. From there, he went to Spain, where he attended the Expo 92 World Fair and met with Prime Minister Felipe Gonzalez, who had become his friend. In March, he visited Germany, where he was received warmly by many politicians who praised his role in facilitating German reunification. He was loved in the West, really. Yeah, he still is. Yeah. So to also supplement that stuff, he appeared in some advertisements for like Pizza Hut and Louis Vuitton. Yeah, he did. I forgot about that. Yeah. Um, and uh, he also published his memoirs with Ray's assistance. Uh, they were published in Russian in 1995 and English the following year. And he also began writing a monthly syndicated column for the New York Times. He, he was pretty critical of Yeltsin. Well, they didn't like each other, so that's part of it. <laughs> But he remained quite, he he kind of promised he wouldn't criticize Yeltsin too much, but it didn't take very long before they were just sniping at each other again. But in contrast to her husband's political efforts, Raiza had focused on campaigning for children's charities. In 1997, she founded a subdivision of the Gorbachev Foundation known as Raiza Maximovna's Club to focus on improving women's welfare in Russia. The foundation had initially been housed in the former Social Science Institute building, but Yeltsin introduced limits to the number of rooms it could use there. The American philanthropist philanthropist Ted Turner then donated over $1 million to enable the foundation to build a new premises on the Leningradsky Prospect. In 1999, Gorbachev made his first visit to Australia, where he gave a speech to the country's parliament. Shortly thereafter, in July, Raiza was diagnosed with leukemia. With the assistance of German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder, she was transferred into a cancer center in Münster, Germany, and underwent chemotherapy. In September, she fell into a coma and passed away. After Raiza's passing, Gorbachev's daughter Irina and his two granddaughters moved into his Moscow home to live with him. When questioned by journalists, he said that he would never remarry. He's also remained quite critical of Putin. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. And, like, Putin, like, the thing about it is, like, if anyone can be critical of Putin, it's Gorbachev, because literally, like, there's not much 
Putin can do because the moment something happens to Gorbachev, yeah, it's got, all hell's gonna break loose. Oh yeah, you can't touch him. No. Yeah. I mean, not ju- not only is he fa- is he still highly regarded internationally, but he's still very highly regarded in Russia. Yeah, and he he opened a foundation in his wife's name. Oh. Yeah, like they're actually really cute. It's like, very cute. Yeah. Yeah. He visited New Orleans after Katrina. Oh, wow. Yeah. Did he get there before Bush did? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, he did, actually. And he also did attend Reagan's funeral in 2004. Yes. Uh, Spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's okay. Um, I mean, if you don't actually know, already know this stuff, then, I mean, I mean, like, the yeah. fact that Reagan He's dead. is dead. Um, Actually, he also met with Barack Obama in 2009 as an, in efforts to try and help reset the strained U.S.-Russian relations. He he makes a lot of public appearances still. Like he's still pretty um, active, although his health has sort of been declining. I think he's got to be uh, in his 80s or 90s at this point. He is 89. Oh wow, so, so close. Yeah. yeah. Reagan's life hasn't like unfortunately. For Reagan, is his life was not as traveling. Like he didn't do lectures, just stuff like that. But following the end of his presidency, the Reagans retired to the the Bel Air community in Los Angeles. For the next six years, he worked on having his memoirs written and oversaw the planning and construction of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley. He stirred up a lot of controversy after he accepted $2 million to speak in Japan. In response, he decided to decline further requests for foreign speeches. The Reagans spent their time between Bel Air, their suite in Century City, and at their ranch in Santa Barbara. On April 13, 1992, Reagan was presented with an award by the National Association of Broadcasters in Las Vegas. During his acceptance speech, an anti-nuclear protester named Richard Springer, who had snuck into the ceremony with fake press credentials, managed to get onto stage and smash the the Crystal Eagle statue that had been given to Reagan. While glass shards hit Reagan, he was uninjured, and as Springer moved towards the podium, he was tackled to the ground by Secret Service and escorted away, while Reagan was moved off stage. However, Reagan returned and finished his speech. Springer was protesting the underground nuclear weapons test, which was scheduled to take place the next day in Nevada. He stated he had no intention of hurting Reagan and pled guilty to lesser charges. On November 5th, 1994, Reagan released a public letter through his wife announcing he had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Following this announcement, he mostly disappeared from public life. In the following years, the disease progressed rapidly and soon he was only able to remember a few people, including Nancy. However, he continued to dress himself with some help, play golf, go for long walks, and remained in good spirits for the remainder of his life. In January 2001, Reagan fell at his home in Bel Air, breaking his hip. He required surgery the next day, which was successful. For the remainder of his life, he lived semi-secluded with Nancy. When asked about this by Larry King, Nancy reasoned, quote, Ronnie would want people to remember him for who he was. Reagan developed pneumonia and died on June 5th, 2004, age 93. He was transferred to Santa Monica in order for well-wishers to pay their respects. 
He was given a private family funeral at the Reagan Presidential Library, then flown to Washington, D.C., where he lay in the Capitol Rotunda on June 9th. 104,684 people walked past his casket to pay their respects in 34 hours. Wow. Yeah. His state funeral took place on June 11th in Washington Cathedral. Then he was flown back to California for yet another service at the Presidential Library before he was interned at the library that bears his name. To date, he remains the longest-lived president in American history. Hmm. That's our story. Yeah. So we did it. We did. Yay. Yeah, for sure. So Uh, If you like what you hear, please consider supporting us on Patreon. We would really appreciate it. Also, give us a follow on social media if you don't already. Um, at Panhistoria Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and at Panhistoria Pod on Twitter. I do have a quick fact. Apparently, of of the all the witch, all the people put on trial for witchcraft in England, mm-hmm. three fourths of them were acquitted. Huh. Interesting. And none of them were burned at the stake. Well, that's good. So. Yeah, it's 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 interesting because like you get all this misconceptions in history about the witch trials. I mean, they're a bit worse in the states, but yeah, yeah. in England, three fourths were acquitted. Hmm. I don't really. It's not a new fact that I have, but so the last few weeks, the national championships in curling have been happening in Canada, and so my fun fact is that all of the curling stones come from the same quarry in Scotland. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's a lot of stone. It's like a specific type of granite. Wow. It was first introduced to sport in 1988 in Calgary. Yay. Canada won gold in the women's and men's, I think. I don't remember, but I wasn't alive. But I I know. In 88? Yeah. We couldn't have because we didn't win any golds in 88. Right. So, uh, right. I've forgotten uh, the women's Sweden won gold, I think. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway. There's a bonus fact. Canada didn't win any gold in the 88 Olympics. I was in Calgary. I forgot because we didn't win our first gold medal on home soil until Vancouver. Yay. And then we won the most like gold medals that a home country's ever won. So yeah. we, we made up for made it. Made up for it. <laughs> anyway, um, so that's that's it. Um, The next episode is going to be a doozy yeah. because we're going to be talking about the Chernobyl accident. I think it's going to be a long one, so prepare yourselves. Yeah, it's definitely going to be a long one. It's going to be a hard one to talk about in a lot of ways. Um, Again, a lot of misconceptions about that accident, but bear with us. We're going to try and get through it and explain it. And then after that, like, we only have two episodes left in the season. So we we got Chernobyl next, and then we have the basically collapse of the Soviet Union last. Yeah. But we're getting there. Season three, almost done, and then a bit of a break. And then back to work. All right. With that, we will talk to you soon. Thank Uh, you so much. I'm Lindsay. I'm Jonah. Have a good night, everyone.